welcome to Tex Talks. I am Tex and today, sure, today I'm talking to a lady who's been my, on my interview bucket list since I first saw her face and heard her voice on TV. And there's something so incredibly captivating and unique about the songs that she writes. And coupled with her bold, slick style, she's become a musical force to be reckoned with. I am, of course, talking about Zoe Modicha. Zoe, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Tex, I'm good. I didn't know I was in the bucket list. Yay! Yes, <laughs> you are. A hundred percent. I've roped you in now. Roped you in. There's no That's turning so back. Awesome. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. And we're and we're super glad to have you. And I'm I'm also glad to hear that you're good, you know, especially now that there's no curfew. Everybody seems to be infinitely better. How how has the lifting of the curfew impacted things on your side? Are you are you back in the eventing swing of things? Have you hit the ground running with performing again? You know, I wish I could say I've hit the ground running, but if I were to be quite honest with you, I think I'm having to do a lot of inner work in terms of just realizing that things have kind of changed and the curfew's been lifted and to kind of mentally put myself in the rhythm of getting back into it. So I'm finding it weirdly challenging uh, than I did before when the curfew wasn't lifted. I don't know if I was on autopilot mm -hmm. or something, but I feel like now I am kind of having to just confront the fact that, okay, we did have a weird year or two and we're at the point where we have a lot more liberty to do things now. So I'm taking it one day at a time, but I'm definitely excited to do shows and performances and you know, just have a good time, see people, you know, make memories. See people. <laughs> I mean, for me, I think that's the big thing. Just actually see people and like give them a high five, you know, from a socially distance point, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> Virtual but, high five. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, ugh, I mean, that's what I miss the most. I miss that, that interaction. Like lockdown was, was rough. Like rough, lockdown was rough for a lot of people. What was, what was your experience of it like you know i think i i i on my end i think i tried to be brave about lockdown um and i was very much like i said before like on autopilot and okay this is not working so let's do this very like solutions oriented and mm. i mean i don't mean to say that i wasn't affected at all on a mental and emotional level but in my mind, I was like, okay, wh what can we do? And we were able to do a lot of shows and have a good time with music lovers and everything. But I think for all the autopiloting that I did earlier, I now I've had to come to terms with, oh, crap, actually, this is what we've all been through. And, mm. and you know, kind of having to deal with what that is and see it through, feel it through and and hopefully move forward with even better ideas than before, you know, but it has been a very tricky time with a lot of changes that have ha had to happen. And a lot of us have had to kind of, you know, dig deeper if we've had the luxury to, or, or stay alive, if that's all we've been able to do, you know? Um, but yeah, hopefully this is a new, a new part of, of this new reality that we're in where we can all just, keep above the water, you know. But girl, you know, you've got this because you are a seasoned performer. You have performed across pretty much all of the best stages in South Africa and many also across the world. But I'm sure that performing at the 2010 World Cup opening ceremony, like that's an experience that can't be replicated. That's like some Listen. once in a lifetime stuff right there. Hey, hey, ah, can you, can you remember? <laughs> <laughs> Can you remember how you felt? I, I definitely can. I mean, I'm sure every South African can remember how they felt in 2010. You know, even if you couldn't get yourself to the stadium, there was just a buzz. There was this excitement that was in the air that I, I don't think we felt anything like that since you know, um, but having having the opportunity to perform at the at the 2010 World Cup was really amazing. You know, that was the first time I got to work with King Ta, who I adore a great deal. Um, and we we were actually the young people that I don't know if you remember the opening ceremony, but we were the young folks that had um, 
attire on and we became the entire planet, you know. So I was ah. holding down Nigeria. That's where I was situated. But that was so beautiful. And I think for all of us that were there, it was one of those moments that you don't forget. You know what I mean? I mean, isn't it crazy? Like you said, everybody knows where they were and how they felt watching that, even if they couldn't make it there. But isn't it crazy that 2010 was 12 years ago, Zoe? It's uh, like, what it is just going blows on? my mind. Blows <laughs> my mind. But I want to go back even further in your memory and what stands out to you when you think back to Mvutuza Road in Mbali and Peter Maritzburg. What memories do you have of your childhood growing up? We like to throw it back here at Text Talks. Uh, and I love throwbacks. I feel like I'm one of those people that are so nostalgic and like live in the past. I'm definitely one of those people. So it's always such a soft spot, you know. Mvutuza um, Road in Bali, Ewan, was really the beginning for me. Um, when I think back to all all the warmest memories that I have of life and what life is. And wherever I feel the need to kind of fuel myself up with that memory, I always go back to Mbutuza Road, you know? Um, and it really was just a typical township setting filled with love where your family wasn't just in your fence, but it was the entire community, you know? Everyone was your brother, your sister, your uncle, your aunt, your grandmother. And it was just, it was warm. It was warm and it was beautiful. Um, and I think even when it comes to music, I always say that that was the beginning of my music education because, you know, it, it was one of those places where everyone would be playing music very loud at any given time. Maybe on Sundays, there'd be a lady on, on the other end who's your neighbor playing gospel. And then there'd be uh, a tavern that was playing Bakanga. And then there would be uh, like a copy, you know, with a gentleman playing like hip hop and quieto music there. So it was really the beginning of me observing how people live and, and being like, wow, this music thing is so... It's such a soundtrack to everyone's life. I would like people to feel like that, you know. Um, but other than that, it was warm. It was just warm and kind and beautiful. And then after observing all of these things going on in your hometown, when do you realize that you've been given the gift of music? So there was a, a good friend of mine who um, was a neighbor, still is a neighbor, in Bali, Ewan, and very typical... Um, a very typical setting there is that there's the homestead, like the actual house, and then there's taps, communal taps that connect everyone. So there's just a lot of community um, when it comes to like washing your hands, washing pots, mm -hmm. washing clothes. You know, everyone is meeting up in that in that area. Um, and there was also uh, there's also like a a shower head kind of area as well as a toilet setting. So this friend of mine used to sing at the top of her lungs. And I mean the top of her lungs. And she would do this every time she would shower. And I was like, ooh, I'm, I'm going to copy that, you know? Because as much as she was a friend of mine, she was older than me, you know? And I suppose I looked up to that and I was like, well, I'm also going to sing in the shower and all of that. And um, I used to just be known for doing that as well. And I suppose the dots started connecting it's not like my family was telling me, ooh, you have such a pretty voice or anything, but it was just something that I did and it was something that became a part of their lives. It was only when I was in grade four and I was asked to sing happy birthday as we all were to join the junior choir uh, by Miss Dentlovu. That was when it was like, oh, this is interesting. So I made it to mm -hmm. the junior choir kind of thing. Um, and I started to lead um, some songs in the choir. And I'll, I guess that was the time when I realized that, oh, wow, maybe there's something happening here, you know? 
Mm-hmm. You know, I've done so many interviews. The, the ones off the top of my head, Sanal, Musician, Reason, and a bunch of others, who all who have all told me that African parents don't want to hear that you want to study music. Like engineering, <laughs> becoming a doctor, you know, yes, that's it. But music, music is like a hard no. And I know that you come from a line of academics. So was there ever any pushback in your family regarding you pursuing music or were they super happy about you being a scholar? You know, I I, I completely understand the world that uh, Sun Al and, and Reason and I think a lot of uh, musicians and peers have went through, you know, but I'm really one of the lucky ones that never had that kind of pushback, you know. Um, I mm-hmm. think my family coming from an academic background meant that they all did what they wanted to and maybe at the back of their mind they were invited to too many school plays and and too many award show thingies <laughs> you know they were just like ah oh, there's just only one way that this is going to go with this kid so there was never ever any pushback there was always a lot of support from quite early on you know which is something I'm I'm very very grateful for that my family was about you know I mean, there really is nothing like getting the support from your parents uh, with regards to what it is that you want to do after school. I mean, I I ended up taking two years off. I only was supposed to take one, and then one ended up being two. And I remember my dad saying, like, listen, we will support you like financially, which is obviously great for me, but we'll support you in all sense of the word, but you need to know what it is that you want to do. Not No way in hell are we like paying for first year, and then you're going to you're going to drop out and then you want to go do something else. And then you drop out. They, they were like, no, you need to learn how to commit to something and how to see it through. And for that, I really thank them because otherwise I think I would have been like this weird dropout. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> but I mean, I feel, I think that the moral of that story is actually really awesome. The whole thing of seeing things through, you know, mm. and, and, I think that's such a beautiful lesson when you consider the fact that that's that's really what life is about, you know, and and honoring yourself in that way becomes important because the less things you see through, the less trust you have for yourself in the ability to even see things through, you know. So kudos to you. You're preaching, preaching the truths. (laughs) 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 But I know that before you studied jazz at the South African College of Music at UCT, you attended the National School of Arts. And Langa Mavuso, who I had on Text Talks last season, love him. Yes. I know that he also (laughs) went there. So were you guys, you know, either at NSA or UCT at the same time? Because, like, you know, I can see the two of you being, like, besties. Yeah. So, <laughs> shout out to Langa Mavu. So, uh, I call him Nati because uh, his his name is, is Nkosi Nati to those of us who've mm-hmm. known him for quite a long time, you know. Incredible singer, incredible human being. Um, so yeah, we met in NSA, uh, when I was doing my grade nine, he started his grade eight. So that's how we met. And he actually started doing drama. Uh, so he was an actor when he got to the national school of the arts and then this makes a lot of sense. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, we, we actually just started hanging out and, and as much as I was a, a year higher, um, you know, there was always this kind of thing that connected us, you know. Um, he always seemed to love us having conversations about music and life and just the way that we looked at things. And we ended up entering like a lot of high school plays where we'd get to really interact a lot during rehearsals. And that's where we met. And and when I decided to study jazz at the uh, College of Music in UCT, he was like, man, how are you finding that? Is that cool? I think I want to come through because I think he studied somewhere else before and then decided to leave what he was doing and, and come through to UCT. So we've kind of always had this way about us in the sense that music was connecting us, you know, and, and, and it has even till this day being able to record um, I Wish with him and being able to write home which is a, um, another record of his. Uh, but it's been so beautiful to kind of have people you grow with 
and and see them accomplish things and mm. being able to be like wow this is all the things that we we hoped it would be and maybe these are some of the things we didn't hope it would be but we're still here and we're still able to i suppose in some ways ground each other in that you know there's something about people knowing you when no one else does and did uh, that kind of has this grounding thing um, to it you know so i i adore him i adore him a great deal and i'm so proud and happy for him um, in everything that he does and yeah that's my homie <laughs> do you have a good memory or would you say you have a good memory uh it depends i i tend to remember a lot of things in the past than i do in the current time so it depends but i think so i think i do okay okay so then if langa's got a bad memory that's cool cuz he's sorted cuz you've got a good memory and then when you guys are like older and like a little bit grayer but still looking very sexy and suave you can get together yes. and be like remember that time back at UCT when langa's going to be like no i don't remember anything you're going to be like well i've got all the memories locked away <laughs> but but you know sorry i was very very surprised to learn that you were actually kicked out of the south african college of music in your third year because apparently apparently your theory wasn't up to standard but then you were still yes. able to use the facilities so like instead of being depressed and feeling sorry for yourself you get behind the grand piano and you start writing what then goes on to be your first album yellow the novel but talk to me about this period in your life because the college is essentially saying you're not good enough in certain aspects to continue and you go okay cool but i am good enough so watch me write an album and it's this really powerful <laughs> thing to take a shitty situation and turn it into i mean art really oh man you know i have to say that um when when the news came of me having to be kicked out because of theory because i mean this was at the time where i was leading i was one of the soloists who were performing at the for the big band which was this big prestigious thing to be a part of um i was also a part of the uct vocal group which i mean there's only five or six people that get to be allowed into that so practically there was a lot of things that i was doing and i was excelling in but because of the theory i wasn't able to move forward with it i fall down and i won't forget when um professor mike campbell actually you know invited me to his office to break down the news that i wasn't going to be moving forward you know and i could literally see i mean Mike Campbell has been a part of so many careers and for such a long period of time um and anyone who's been to UCT as an alumni knows that he had a very intimidating exterior but when i saw him have glossy eyes mm-hmm. explaining to me that i couldn't move forward i was like man this is not what they would have liked to hear or see you know so it didn't make anyone happy that that was the reality and i think for me that was a very endearing moment because i would have never thought he could be glossy eyed at the prospect of me leaving you know shame, um, but man. i was able to still big shame but big like big cute moment at the same time <laughs> mm. so mm. you know um i was able to still use the college uh you know to kind of just practice because i was still in cape town for the remainder of that year and and it was beautiful to be able to compose um go into a practice room there was a practice room with a black uh, grand piano i really adored it and i think a lot of us would fight for it because a lot of classical pianists <laughs> would like to like rehearse with it as well and there i was right so whenever it was open i would go there and it just started becoming this really cathartic experience of being like okay i may come from this academic family and even though they've never pressured me i've always wanted to prove that i'm an a, a, an academic in music you know just cuz mm-hmm. that's that's what i come from and not being able to do that i i was able to really lean onto the music that was yellow the novel and and create from there and and feel create a space for myself in that where i i self reflect and introspect and just talk about all the things that you know um yellow the novel was about um but it was it was beautiful 
And I think looking back, being able to do that was such a gift. And maybe that was the point. Maybe me even going to UCT, the point of it was to be able to have those stories to tell afterwards, you know. So it's Mm. quite beautiful, you know, the hindsight of it. Mm. I want to dig a bit deeper into Yellow, the novel, and we'll get there. But a lot went down during the years before you actually released it. And I want to start with you winning the Samro Overseas Scholarship and spending a couple of weeks in New York and in California. Was was this the first time that you've been overseas, like been on a plane and like been outside of South Africa? Yes, it actually was. It was the first time I went to the United States of America. It was the first time I went to California. California. And the first time I went to um, uh, to New York. Uh, at that point, I had already started touring with Seba Kapstadt, which is a band I'm a part of, a four-piece band. Mm-hmm. And we do a lot of like European tours. But it was the first time in the USA. And it was incredible. It was so incredible. It was so incredible. So, so enlightening. Um, and the experience of being able to learn from one of the best songwriters and to also be um, contributing to uh, Dreaming Zenzile, which is a play about Miriam Makeba that Somi wrote and an incredible vocalist. Being able to have the opportunity to do those mm-hmm. things was beautiful, you know. Um, and it felt like a little gap year, mm-hmm. even though it was like a month at most. Uh, but it felt like a little gap year to kind of figure things out post UCT, you know, so it was incredible. It was really incredible. What stands out when you think back to learning about music in between those two states? What stands out for you the most? Uh, I think what stands out to me about learning about music at that time was the fact that there is this entity called music, but everything I seemed to be learning was related to life more than anything. Mm. You know, I, I, my experience and memory of it was not, ooh, I had an amazing academic experience. It was like, oh, wow, it's so beautiful to connect with people from different walks of life and to experience them through their eyes and to learn the ways that they look at things and the ways that they reason and to see so many differences and similarities, you know, um, and that everyone has dreams, everyone has hopes doesn't matter what background you come from and what you've seen, you know, and that does matter as well, you know. So it was it was really inspiring in that it it was just more about life. And I think the more that I am a musician and a storyteller and a songwriter and you know, someone that just likes to reflect the times, the more I realize that any knowledge of music that I've had really was just life being reflected back to me, you know, to be able to articulate mm. it. It was never like, oh, I have five octave range, or it was never these, you know, academic ideas that would pop up first. And and I hope it stays that way. Um, and I think you're able to really translate so much um, even into your craft when when the perspective is life, the entirety of life. Now, just a quick side note because I have some super exciting news. Over at Text Talks, we get a huge number of artists reaching out to us to highlight their amazing content. And because we plan our seasons quite far in advance, we often can't accommodate requests to spotlight some of the amazing up and coming talents South Africa, Africa, and the world has to offer. And so we started Text Talks Extra. Text Talks Extra has gone on to become its own beast and thanks to all of your support, we are super excited to announce that our friends in the culture of humor have stepped up to collaborate with us for the next season of Text Talks Extra launching on the 14th of February. Puma have been at the very forefront of the culture through iconic collabs with the likes of Nomzamo Mabata, Winnie Harlow, Dua Lipa and Cara Delevingne to Nintendo and even my fave sweeties Haribo, while always looking toward being more sustainable in the pursuit of their biodegradable shoe experiments. I mean, this is the brand that bought us suede, a fashion icon that's been a staple since its first drop in the 70s. Finally, 
Keep your finger on that refresh button on Puma's Insta. Rumor has it with restrictions easing more and more, select sessions might just be happening live and in person at their flagship Ramfontein store. So don't say we didn't warn you. We are stoked to be collaborating with Puma again and can't wait to bring you only the freshest content on Tech Talks Extra, including all the happenings in the land of Puma for 2022. Whether it's their latest collab, hashtag select sessions, hashtag suede Sundays, or just a reminder that she moves us. Catch all the drops on at Puma South Africa on Insta or wherever you follow the iconic cat. And now, back to the show. You've got all of this wealth of knowledge and all of these experiences under your belt. And then enter the voice. Season one, where you make it to the top eight. I can just, I could just listen to you do that all day. Just sing whatever you want. Just be me being silent and you singing on this podcast. And that will be the episode. (laughs) (laughs) and you made it you made it to top who won that year was Richard Sturton right yes the beautiful soul that is Richard Sturton yes he was the winner of season one such a kind soul like honestly I think everyone was so amazing he he really was one of those standout people for me just in terms of the kind of person that he was and then obviously the incredible talent that made him a winner you know yeah, I mean, he was a standout and so were you because I don't think anybody could forget that gorgeous board girl with the septum ring. I mean, like, I, I, you know, who shook shit up completely. You sang yes. Katy Perry. You sang Rihanna. My personal favorite, you sang Nirvana. thinking that your whole goal with the voice was really to showcase your versatility right and wake people up to your talent on a national scale before you released your debut record absolutely i mean at the time that i went um on the voice i was um there alongside other people who were actually professionals at the time that they entered the show um and i'd recorded yellow the novel at that time but it was exactly that it was really just to showcase versatility and and to kind of allow people to be awakened to the fact that there is a Zoe Mutika, you know. So as much as I was having um, such a like a thriving experience in Cape Town as this up and coming, you know, composer, singer, songwriter, I really just wanted to kind of make that uh, a national and international recognition. And I, I really did think that that was the best way to do that, you know. Um, and it, it, it proved to be that, you know, uh, I was able to challenge myself singing a lot of songs that maybe people wouldn't expect me to. But for me, I also just wanted to articulate the fact that music isn't just like genres and mm-hmm. it isn't all these boxes that we, we make. You know, music is, is how it makes you feel. And I think if it, it if it isn't able to make you feel anything, then it's worth considering if it's music at all. So for me, that's that's what I wanted to be really the heart of what I do. And I, in my mind, in my silly mind, I believe that in being able to introduce myself, singing different kinds of songs that articulate different messages to people, that when the time came for people to get to know me as an artist, they would allow me the freedom to create um, outside of boxes as well, you know, and, and just to be able to explore different soundscapes and messages and, and ways of articulating and expressing. Well, I mean, I think regardless of what anybody, of what, you know, how people try to box you, I mean, cause you know, people love putting labels on things and saying she is this and he is that and he makes this kind of music and she makes that kind of music people tried to do that with you but with yellow you like completely broke all of the rules i mean you had 
23 tracks on the album. Some were nine <laughs> minutes long. Some were 11 <laughs> minutes long. And I mean, that's incredibly brave. It's incredibly anti-radio, especially after being on a show like The Voice that was everywhere at the time. And it takes complete conviction of your artistic direction to do something like that. Talk to me about the decision behind such a remarkable, unconventional release. Also, I mean, you'd been sitting on it for a very long time as well before you released it. Yeah. Oh, man. So, I mean, at the time that The Voice happened, after the show, after making it top eight, there was the opportunity to sign um, on, on, on certain labels. Um, but I wasn't able to really achieve the idea of, of being able to reconcile that in my mind only because I felt it was going to be artistically limiting to me. Um, and really I wasn't trying to, I wasn't trying to be unconventional. I wasn't trying to break, break anything or change things or shift things. But I, I really do think the conviction to just have an idea and a messaging and articulate that as myself and, and being able to articulate myself as myself was really such an important thing to me quite early on, you know? Um, and even if I, I was making a record that wasn't going to make sense to most people, maybe, you know, or a record that wasn't be, that wasn't going to be groundbreaking or a record that wasn't going to have any, wasn't going to chart I didn't have a problem with that because to me, my conviction was the thing that made me sleep at night. You know, um, it, it was the ability of knowing that the things that I think are worth sharing. And if anything, if I'm going to share myself as a person, I want to share myself exactly as I am, you know. Um, so that's what that mm. record was about. And if exactly as I am is about recording music that is nine, 11, 13 minutes long, then I wanted that, you know? And I think a part of that for me was also looking back to all these records that I enjoyed, you know, uh, growing up where music didn't just end at three minutes and 30 seconds. And I wanted to explore that, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And I've liked being the guinea pig to my own ideas. I've liked being able to just be like, well, let me try and see and see what this is and what this means. And I've liked being able to, to trust myself to investigate all these things that I've always wanted to try out. And, and it's something that I find gets a little more challenging with time. Uh, but at that point I felt I had a clean slate and I could just articulate myself exactly as I am and for what I stood for. And, I think I need to constantly go back to that and learn that again and again and again, that fearlessness and that this is me and damn it, you're going to hear me or, you know, welcome to my world, you know, as opposed to conforming to an existing world and way of doing things. Yo, you know, Zoe, you are my kind of artist because as much as it places full responsibility on you as an independent artist to fund everything, market everything, it must be the most liberating thing to have to answer to nobody when you do everything by yourself. I, I know I work for myself, so I know the risk, but I also know the reward. But yeah. describe that feeling of knowing that your fans trust you to create art that will speak to them no matter what it is that you decide to do? You know, with that, I can say that as much as it's liberating to not have to answer to anyone, I think one of the most important jobs that we have as, as human beings is to be able to answer to ourselves, you know? Mm. Because mm -hmm. when, when you've done the performances and you've sang the songs and you've written the songs and you've shared them um, and you're alone in your own space, it's like, what is that feeling? You know, is that peace? Is that... And at that point, you don't really... You're not in a position to play to anything. So it's just all these masks off and are, are you happy with that? So for me... That's what I'm constantly asking myself, you know, is this fulfilling for myself? Is this mm -hmm. happy to me? Does this feel like my truth at this point? And even if it evolves into something else, is that is that where I want to be seen and recognized to be right now, you know? Um, and I think it makes my music lovers that much more special 
the mm-hmm. fact that they as much as they say they cre- I create a safe space for them they actually create and facilitate such a safe space for me in being able to just express my truth then and there you know um and I'd hope that at the back of their minds maybe they relate to me because that's what they want to aspire to and be themselves you know in, in whatever in whatever roles that they play I I would hope that it's like okay well Zoe is true to herself in this way and therefore I'm able to be true to myself in in the role that I play to myself and to the world around me you know but um I find mm. my fans to be giving uh and I don't like to call them fans because in many ways I don't kind of get what that is you know mm-hmm. um but I think we're able to just yeah meet at the points that we meet and and aspire to things together and 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 investigate things and evoke each other's emotion and and just try and figure out this life thing you know um and I'll always be grateful for how organic and authentic that relationship is I know quite a few artists that don't enjoy calling their audience fans what what would an alternative phrase be or something that you do enjoy calling them by um i usually call them music lovers oh, i like that uh, and i've i've pointed it out to them guys if you want to call yourself something else you're welcome to but yeah i just say <laughs> my, my music lovers you know <laughs> it's cute and it's the truth because that's what connects us right? is there not a collective noun for your audience yet like I don't know like some kind of cool <laughs> hybrid of your name or your surname or something there needs to be we need to think of something I mean I mean as soon as they let me know I'll be on board cuz I mean the best name to call people is the is the name that they want you know I don't want to make things up and then it's like oh girl no <laughs> no child you know so I'd like them to let me know like what what they have in mind Okay, so yeah, everybody listening to this podcast right now, this is a call to action to you to let Zoe and myself know, but mainly Zoe, what you would like to be called because we need a collect she needs a collective noun for her audience because you guys are just the absolute best. And I see how like every time every time Zoe drops anything, you guys just jump on it like in the best way. So, yeah, I think I think we need a collective noun just to to yeah highlight the fact that you're all awesome but huh let's do that things, guys exactly exactly one of the things that sorry i love the most about you and and makes you a bucket list interview for me is your evolution as an artist uh because on on yellow there was only i think one of three songs were written in your mother tongue and then one of them was And please tell me if I'm pronouncing this correctly because I want to get it right. Ingane sure. kwane. Yes, ingane kwane. Ingane kwane. Okay, there we go. That's much yes. better. Yes. That's much Perfect. better. Yes. And that's the name of your second album. So, Ingane kwane was such an interesting experience for me. Um I think it was the most fearful I had been and maybe I used that fear as okay this is exactly what i'm supposed to do you know um mm-hmm. because in my mind i was like okay going from yellow the novel i don't wish to create another yellow the novel when i release a uh, new music i like the idea of having errors to it i like to have a visual message as well as a sonic message and i i recognized that it was time to do something else and at around the time that we were performing yellow the novel into the second year of of the album coming out um there was just a lot of questions that were coming up in my mind about identity and about you know the african story and and what i thought about it and where i thought my mind fits into all of that you know because it is a very a very layered story a very complicated story but a very beautiful one as well and i wanted mm-hmm. to kind of before even knowing that i would be writing about that i i was really just in that rabbit hole you know um mm-hmm. and as as much as i was performing yellow the novel uh, a lot of audience members would listen to inganegwane which is a song from yellow the novel and they'd be like wow zoe you 
you seem to access something quite different um, in this uh, Isizulu song than you do with the other songs. I mean, we love them too, but there seems to be something to go into there, you know. Um, and I started hearing that from music lovers. I started hearing that f- from people I was working with as well, you know. And I was like, okay, this is terrifying. Um, there was something very, I don't want to say mindless about Tinganegwane, but Tinganegwane to me was an, was an example of how extreme motion puts you back in the space of your mother tongue, you know. And it was really a song about heartbreak. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and when I was writing the song, I wasn't trying to come up with the best metaphors and whatnot. It was really just a reflex off of a very extreme emotion. And so for me, that was how I connected the, connected the dots because that's that's what the sophomore album ended up becoming. It was a lot of the things that I was feeling and thinking and felt very strongly about Um and a message that I wanted to come across, you know. Um, and it wasn't easy, you know, because in my mind I was like, oh, I don't know that I'm fluent enough to go into this territory. I don't want to disrespect other Zulu speakers, you know. Um, mm. And being being a person who moved from Peter Maritzburg uh, in KwaZulu Natal to go to Gauteng and live more than half my life there, I just was wondering if I if I could say I still belonged, you know. So there was a lot of existential questions that came with the second record, you know. But maybe I'm just mm-hmm. an existential person. I don't know. Um, but I, I just started, you know, just being like, okay, let's not overthink this. Started playing with my guitar, you know, and just like whatever words would come out, I'll jot those words down, you know. Um, and that, and then I was quite surprised because I was like oh wow this is actually happening and it's flowing through and it's not you know it feels like home and I was like oh yeah that that feeling that feeling like home and being the nostalgic person that I think I am I always like to look back to make sense of moving forward and and that's what I did I was like what what did home feel like you know and and what was it like growing up and and coming from Peter Maritzburg and Balewan, coming from Vutuza Road, you know, having a paternal family in the Eastern Cape, Kwampisi, Epizana, you know, also having a suburban upbringing, all these worlds coming as one was like an anchor for me that, okay, I may feel like I don't have all the language, but there are people like me who've lived like me and and that makes my perspective worthy to be heard you know i may not know all the the sayings and 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 the synonyms to a lot of words but there are people like me who might not be able to write their their mother tongue um or might not see themselves as fluent or belonging to it and that's what i'd like to speak to that that feeling of wanting to feel like you're at home and feeling like there's an existential crisis in that I want to be one of those people that that kind of move through that to articulate, you know, the songs that became that album, you know. And then I realized when I released the body of work that maybe I was too hard on myself. Maybe, maybe the answers were all there to be seen and heard and experienced, you know. And I, I think I was trying to make a thesis out of it. And I realized that my opinion... And my points of view were valid, you know, because it was to celebrate black bodies and it was to celebrate even even what seems like a crisis to me, you know, that we kind of all relate to that, whether you are a Zulu speaker or not, you know. And if anything, the music will will anchor you and, and that sound of home will, will, will anchor you and you'll enjoy listening to it. So it was very, very, very interesting. Um and looking back, I'm just like, wow, it's crazy how everything unravels. And, you know, you wanting to find out about something means that thing is already in you. And to it's there for you to find out in you, you know, if that makes any sense. Um, that makes so. it makes so much sense. It makes so much sense. And, and I mean, your your releases and your collaborations you know, have been with some of the greatest South African musicians. And it's this great, like, 
marriage of old school and and new school. I mean, there's the late Johnny Clegg, there's Lady Smith Black Mombazo, and there's lauded drummer Bra Louis Moholo. And I read an interview in which you quote Bra Louis saying, "You don't lead music; music leads you." So I want to mm. know where is music leading you from here? Oh wow, that is so interesting. Um, you know, I feel, I feel right now in this very moment that I'm speaking to you that life is leading me, um, and by the time life articulates itself into music, then I, I definitely won't be leading that. I never have considered myself to lead it. Um, and I've always just allowed myself to be a clear, open canvas, you know, where music happens to me, you know, where the higher power gets to, you know, share things through me. Um, at least that's what I believe, you know. But I think life right now is leading me to a place of just maybe on maybe asking myself. Again, it it always it's always a question. It's always a question with me. But I think I'm I'm just I'm just diving deeper into what the higher power is to me. And I'm in a position in my personal life where I have learned a lot of lessons along the way. Um some public, some private lessons. And now I'm in the position where I feel like all these lessons that I've learned I'm being tested on, you know. So is basically it's like is this is this still what I think you know has my mind evolved to the next idea or is this you know I I just feel like I'm being tested you know to see what what I what is and what isn't to me um, and I think that's where I am and I'm finding um, musically that's articulating into music that is very like cerebral and music that is quite experimental and music that really is just once again questioning existence and 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 really looking into what the higher power is so you know there's a lot of open spaces there um that haven't quite come together yet but i think i think that's where music is leading me you know more questions more questions than answers Zoe Mundicha, it's been an absolute honor. You are as eloquent and thoughtful as I knew you would be, and I hope that I have the privilege of seeing you on stage very soon. So hit me up when you come to Cape Town, girl. We have more to talk about. We have more podcasts to record. <laughs> this has been awesome. Thank you so much.
shout out to Zoe Modija for joining us in studio. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Tex Talks. From me, your host, Tex, producers Jonathan Ings and Matthew Lewitz, and researcher Al Clapper. Catch you on the flip side. Head on over to texttalks.com for all our previous episodes. And remember, that's Tex with a double X. 